0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: On May 25, 1979, American Airlines Flight 191 took off on O'Hare International Airport's Northwest Runway, headed for Los Angeles, California. Most of the passengers on Flight 191 were on their way to a book convention and were excited to head west. But mere minutes after takeoff, something would go terribly wrong, something that would kill hundreds of innocent people and forever label O'Hare International Airport as one of the most haunted airports in the world. Today, we're talking about Flight 191 and the haunted O'Hare International Airport. One of my favorite early Ghost Town episodes is, of course, the Denver Airport, a strange, iconic place that has it all, conspiracies, death, a very shady history— O'Hare, similarly, is a huge hub of travel, and because of its popularity, it's literally the nation's busiest airport, flying more than 83 million passengers every year, I think it was under my radar. But no more, because an airport less than an hour and a half from my hometown, yes, Milwaukee, one that I've been flying in and out of for nearly 30 years, has its own horrifying history. The 7,600-acre airport started as a factory in 1942 for Douglas C-54 aircrafts to be used in World War II. After the conflict and the departure of Douglas, the aircraft's namesake, the field was renamed Orchard Field Airport after a nearby community called Orchard Place. That's why O'Hare's three-letter IATA code, short for International Air Transport Association code, is O-R-D and not like O-H-A or O-H-I. In 1945, Chicago decided to grow Orchard Field to become a fancy international airport. Four years later, the airport was strangely renamed O'Hare International Airport after World War II naval aviator Edward Butch O'Hare, a man with his own tragic and complicated family history. Some might call it a bit of a father-son curse. On February 20th, 1942, St. Louis-born pilot Edward Butch O'Hare became the Navy's first fighter ace when he single-handedly, some say crazily, attacked a formation of nine heavy bombers approaching his aircraft carrier. Even though he had a very limited amount of ammunition, Butch O'Hare was credited with shooting down five Japanese enemy bombers and became the first naval aviator recipient of the Medal of Honor for World War II. Unfortunately, nobody knows for sure what actually killed Butch O'Hare on the night of November 26, 1943. O'Hare had recently volunteered to lead a mission to conduct the first-ever Navy nighttime fighter attack from an aircraft carrier to intercept a large force of enemy torpedo bombers. When the call finally came to man the fighters for this groundbreaking mission, O'Hare was eating. He grabbed up part of his dinner in his fist and started running for the ready room. Black Panthers, as the night fighters are now awkwardly dubbed, took off before dusk and flew out into the incoming mass of Japanese planes. The mission was fraught with confusion and complications, including trouble finding their targets, guiding fire to targets, and a high danger of friendly fire. The last known words of Butch O'Hare also reflected this confusion. He had just radioed the Avenger pilot of his section, saying, quote, Hey, Phil, turn those running lights on. I want to be sure it's a devil I'm drilling. I left out some more offensive parts of this quote, but you get the picture. O'Hare's plane lights went out, and at the same time, he veered off into the darkness and out of his fellow fighters' views. A pilot friend later recalled that, as O'Hare's plane dropped out of his sight, it seemed to release something that fell almost vertically at a speed too slow for anything but a parachute. Then something, quote, whitish-gray appeared below, perhaps the splash of the aircraft, plunging into the sea. After that, no trace of O'Hare or his aircraft was ever found again. Oddly enough, Butch O'Hare would have never become a military pilot if it wasn't for his father, Edward O'Hare, called Easy Eddie, who was obsessed with flying and guns himself. Easy Eddie made his living first as a lawyer that represented Owen P. Smith. High Commissioner of the International Greyhound Racing Association. As a note, he's the guy who patented a mechanical running rabbit for use in dog racing. And then, much more famously, as Al Capone's lawyer. Unlike his son, Easy Eddie was a big-time gambler and loved being associated with important people. An avid dog racer, attorney, and asshole. As the story goes, one day in the 1920s, Edward O'Hare came home to find his son, Butch, sprawled on a couch reading books and eating banana layer cake and donuts. Edward decided that his boy was showing signs of laziness and enrolled him at Western Military Academy in Alton, Illinois, and Butch never looked back. But Butch O'Hare would only outlive his dad by a couple of years. In November 1939, Edward O'Hare was shot and killed, most likely by Al Capone's gunman. During Capone's tax evasion trial in 1931 and 1932, Easy Eddie turned on the notorious mob boss, providing incriminating evidence that helped finally put Capone away. Less than five years later, Butch O'Hare would be dead, and on September 19, 1949, the Chicago-area Orchard Depot Airport was renamed O'Hare International Airport. Then, O'Hare Airport grew. Chicago's other big airport, Midway, initially established itself as Chicago's airfield of choice. It lacked runways long enough to handle the larger, heavier planes of the dawning jet age. O'Hare underwent major expansions in the 1950s and 1960s and transformed into the sprawling airport we buy overpriced Dasanis in today. Which brings us back, I mean, to the future, but then steering us back to May 25th, 1979. It was a beautiful holiday weekend in Chicago. The sky was clear, blue, and sunny. The passengers of Flight 191, which included a number of Chicago literary figures, were headed for an even nicer place. They were on their way to Los Angeles for the annual American Booksellers Association conference. Everyone would say that the passengers and the crew of Flight 191 were in incredibly capable hands. Those of Walter Lux, an expert DC-10 pilot with some 22,000 hours of flight time. First Officer James Dillard and Flight Engineer Alfred Udovich, who had nearly 25,000 flight hours between them. The plane itself had traveled 20,000 uneventful hours since it left the factory assembly line. Everyone on board settled in for an easy ride as the time crept towards 3 p.m. A minute before 3 p.m. on Friday, May 25th, the plane was cleared to begin its taxi to the runway's holding point. At 3.02 p.m., with everything a go, Flight 191 started takeoff. 6,000 feet down the runway, the tower controller saw parts of the port engine pylon falling away from the aircraft and a mysterious white vapor coming from the area. As a note, I didn't know this, a pylon is the part of the plane that connects the cylindrical engine to the airframe of the aircraft. It's that little joining piece. Air passes through the pylon to actively disrupt the jet engine exhaust stream after it exits the engine and dampens noise from the aircraft. In any case, a moment later, the plane pitched into rotation and lifted off. As it did, the entire white vapor-covered engine and pylon tore loose from the mounting, flipping up and over the wing, and crashed down onto the runway. Immediately, the tower controller tried to raise the plane on the radio. American 191, do you want to come back? If so, what runway do you want? Pretty calm words for what horror was just witnessed. Despite the loss of the engine and pylon, The wings stabilized, and Flight 191 continued its ascent. There was no reply to the tower controller from the crew, which also struck the controller. Ten seconds later, at a height of about 300 feet, the plane veered left, first slightly, then sharply. The nose of the plane fell, losing control. Flight 191 dove down hard. The left wingtip hit the ground first, and the sound of tearing metal was followed by a massive, deadly explosion. A gigantic fireball swept across the field, traveling about half a mile northwest of O'Hare and roaring into an abandoned airplane hangar just east of Deerfield Mobile Home Park. Thankfully, that was the extent of the plane's land-borne travel and damage. The plane barely missed fuel storage tanks on Elmhurst Road and the crowded I-90 Expressway. At the time, a man named Mac McCall was shift operations supervisor at O'Hare. It was on his shift that this tragedy occurred. He reflects on the crash, saying, quote, I was on the field at the time when I heard a maintenance person say, Mayday, Mayday, on the radio. I could see smoke coming up. The O'Hare Fire Department was dispatched, and I went out with them on the site. The O'Hare Fire Department was dispatched, and I went out with them on the site. The wind was blowing from west to east, and I almost choked on it as we reached the spot. I was looking for an airplane, but I couldn't see it anywhere. It had just melted. All 271 passengers and crew members were killed instantly, along with two residents of the nearby trailer park resulting in the deadliest air disaster in American history. Let's let that sink in as we take a break. Hey there, campers. My name's Kimmy. And my name's Ryan. We've noticed you stumbled upon our mystical campfire, so that means there's a solid chance you have some questions, like... Why am I here? What's going on? And why are there cryptid and folklore creatures everywhere? And should I be worried about the Mothman dressed as a camp counselor swooping down to steal my s'mores? Well, you've stumbled upon the Elorian campgrounds. Elorian is a folklore podcast where every episode we dive into the history and lore of different creatures and cryptids you see wandering around these campgrounds. And during each episode, we discuss the sightings, encounters, poems, history, fun, facts, and pop culture focused on our campfire topic that week. We hope through shared experience, we can learn and make light about all the unknown corners of the universe. So come take a seat around the campfire, make yourself at home, and listen to Alluring Today anywhere podcasts are heard. Or watch videos on YouTube, or even go to our website, alluring.com. That's A-L-O-R-E-I-N-G dot com.
0: Or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, hello. How are you? Hello. How are you doing?
2: I'm taking a deep breath and letting it out. What do you care?
1: I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was checking in with the people. Oh, okay, okay. I want the to know what the, the people. people are doing and how they're doing and how they're feeling.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, hmm what they're eating? Well, what are you eating? What is it then? Are you eating Cheesecake anyone? Factory? What's Ooh, going on? Breadsticks, bread knots, rolls, a baked potato?
1: Are you eating a salad?
2: <laughs> oh, no, say it ain't so.
1: Let us have this. Let us <laughs> pretend you're eating a Cheesecake Factory. I mm. want to say hello to anyone who's listening and sharing and spreading the good word.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Share
1: it with a neighbor. Yeah, they're just like, can I have my lawnmower back? It's like, no. But how about check out this episode of Ghost Town?
2: That's good. They're That's like, that, good. I can't
1: mow my lawn with that. And I was like,
2: well, better than a lawnmower. Ghost Town.
1: What's better than a lawnmower and Ghost Town? Uh oh. The government. <laughs> right? Yeah. Say it with me.
2: Okay. Okay. I'm with you.
1: How about a couple of foxy mayors?
2: <laughs> oh. Okay. Okay.
1: Slinking in.
2: <laughs> the lighting's so good
1: right now, too. James Harrington. Hello. Kat Joselle. Hello. David Bull. Ooh. Ashley Matson. Hi. Dara Rosen Zweig. Hello. And one, Elevated uh-huh. on, just coming up in the, con- like the concert's coming up and it's like Elevated Platform. Oh
2: yeah, the smoke is rising. And wind and Ooh,
1: smoke. The sexiest one of them all. Just everything is just, there's a, like, there's like Muscle Man. Okay. <laughs> And bikini girls, (laughs) an an equal amount. Exercise video? (laughs) An equal amount.
2: Maybe it is an exercise
1: video. I don't know. Turn it into whatever you want. All
2: right.
1: The one and only governor, Avian Noble. Noble. So if you want. Bonus episodes, advanced early access, no Mm. chit chat, no Mm. ads. But content. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say no content. Mm -hmm. That made sense to me.
2: (laughs) But is but plus content. Plus content.
1: Go to patreon.com slash ghost town pod.
2: All right. Let's get back to Chicago, where the city, the country, and the world are shocked. They have just processed this horrific tragedy and couldn't quite understand how this even happened. Everything pointed to a successful flight. An investigation commenced into the flawed maintenance methods leading to the crash of the very, again, very capable DC-10. Less popular, however, as the investigation was going on, were the questions of people at a nearby housing community in the northwest corners of Chicago. Multiple residents of this space, again, it was adjacent to this mobile home park, reported knocking at their doors and windows. Residents who responded, among them a number of retirees and off-duty police officers and firefighters, found no sign of visitors. This knocking, this disturbance, would continue over and over again through the next several weeks and into present day. Thankfully, the flight information was readily available to identify the victims of the crash, as local forensic dentists called to the scene reported difficulty in identifying the bodies. Because of the intense heat of the fuel, there were no remains really for them to examine. Everything and everyone had been almost completely vaporized. On December 21, 1979, the findings of a long and grueling investigation were released, attributing the cause of the crash to an engine pylon that had been damaged at an American Airlines maintenance facility in March of 1979. The engine had needed routine maintenance, and to save time and costs, American Airlines, without the approval of McDonnell Douglas, told mechanics to remove the engine and pylon as a single unit, instead of detaching them and servicing them separately. This time and money-saving ask was extremely difficult to execute, nearly impossible without creating a crack. And guess what? It created a crack. The crack likely went unnoticed for weeks, getting worse with each flight. During Flight 191's fateful takeoff, enough force was generated to finally cause the pylon to fail. At the point of rotation, the engine detached and was flipped over the top of the wing. One small, unnoticed fracture had ended almost 300 lives. Also, after the report of Flight 191's crack in its pylon, another investigation was launched to see if this had happened in other planes. Sure enough, it had. Many other cracks and fractures were found in other DC-10s that came out of the same factory. With an answer as to why this happened, Flight 191's crash site was finally cleared, and Chicago's northwest side felt a little bit calmer. Or did it? As mentioned, the hauntings around Flight 191 started mere hours after the crash, but have continued up until this day. A few figures still haunt the crash scene, lingering in the form of knocks, wails, and moans. Some local residents have passed someone on the road they call the Steaming Man, an annoyed businessman in a suit and trench coat who walks quickly down the road. While that maybe doesn't seem that unusual for an airport-adjacent road, the Steaming Man smells of jet fuel and has waves of steam emanating from him. Speaking of road sightings, according to De Plain police officers, motorists began reporting odd sights within a few months of the crash. They had seen strange bobbing white lights and activity in the field where the flight went down. Their first thoughts were that it was flashlights by ghost hunters, but officers responded to the reports quickly arrived to a silent, deserted field. Local cemeteries called Rest Haven and St. Johannes were moved closer to the crash site from the local airport to make way for a new runway mourners at the cemetery's new locations report whispers, sounds, and feeling touched on their shoulders and arms. Inside the airport itself, inside O'Hare, sightings of at least one of 191's passenger remains, forever retracing his final hours before boarding the DC-10. For the past 20 years, at a payphone near the terminal's lounge, passengers at O'Hare have watched a somber male figure wrap up a last-minute conversation, turn expectantly toward the American 191 gate, take a few steps, and then completely disappear. Then there were the accounts from the residents of the nearby Deerfield Mobile Home Park, and then the subdivision next to it, which, again, was adjacent to the crash site. Like I mentioned earlier, reports came within hours of the crash of knocking at their doors and windows. And the knocking started to escalate to a point that doorknobs were being turned and rattled. Footsteps were heard approaching the trailers, clanging was heard on the metal stairs, and on some occasions, actual forms were seen, unmistakable forms. Specifically, a worried figure who stated that he, quote, had to get his luggage, or, quote, had to make a connection, standing at a mobile home porch. The figure then turned and completely vanished. These traumatic sightings caused many of the residents to move out of the park, but then new people moved in, years after, and they would report the same strange yet consistent happenings. Seeing the steaming man, crying, screaming, moaning, various sounds of the souls of Flight 191, along with shadows, floating orbs, and flying phantom aircrafts are all reported events by the residents of the mobile home park flanking the crash site. And humans weren't the only witnesses to unexplained events. Dogs in the trailer park would bark endlessly at the empty field where the plane had gone down, owners finding no reason for their behavior. And next to the mobile home park, again close to where the crash took place, there's currently a Chicago police canine training facility. Dogs at the facility act strangely, sometimes sensing figures where humans don't and acting confused and scared where there would be no reason to feel that way. There's a memorial for Flight 191 at Lake Park in De Plains, Illinois, with a brick for every one of the passengers and crew members who died. Of course, there's the deep psychological damage of those who actually lived through the event, too. Let's get back to Mac McCall, the shift operations supervisor. McCall and hundreds of airport and American Airlines employees had horrible trauma from witnessing Flight 191 go down. An airline employee who was involved in the maintenance of the plane, but who had no direct connection with the work done on it before its fateful takeoff from O'Hare, took his own life in Oklahoma. His wife, speaking with the press, said the man was distraught about what he had seen. Back then, people didn't know about post-traumatic stress syndrome, McCall continued. You just toughed it out. I still think about it, though. Every time I hear about a tragic incident like a school shooting, I think about it. McCall, amazingly, was witness to another air disaster 10 years later when a United Airlines plane en route from Denver to O'Hare crashed in a fireball while attempting to make an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. Of the more than 200 passengers on the aircraft, more than 100 died. The survivors were later flown from Sioux City to O'Hare, where McCall, as operations supervisor, was responsible for coordinating people at the gate. Some of the people who had been on the plane that crashed were in good shape. Others were beat up. He explained. He said that looking into the eyes of the victims was absolutely devastating. I think it's hard to think about these things because I think of air travel as being very safe. So we forget some of the tragedies surrounding the industry. But the history, the loss of life, the hauntings, and the testimonials on episodes like these can make it all the more vivid, chilling, and real.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take.